Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, well, I have the honor of bringing in a guest that her work, my work, our work <laughs> is quite complimentary. So you're going to find that pretty much everything you need for DEI communications and applying it to your work on a daily basis is going to be wrapped up in this conversation right here. So let's get into it. Um, please, Dr. Susan Wertheim, please introduce yourself and then we'll get into the questions. Sure. Uh, my name is Suzanne Wertheim. I'm currently sitting in Oakland, California. I am the CEO of Worthwhile Research and Consulting, where I apply social science and my academic background to real world problems in the workplace, in particular problems of bias, but not always. You have a very particular expertise in language as a linguist. Um, so how did you get into that work? And you also have a new book coming out. So tell us about the book as well. So it's a little bit roundabout how I got into the work, but people find it interesting. So I'm going to go a little deeper than you might have expected. When I graduated college, I had student debt, like many people, and I graduated mm -hmm. into a recession. And I ended mm -hmm. up with my English degree as a technical writer in tech. And I was so disrespected and my mind and abilities were so disrespected. I felt like so much of the time men in tech were like, blah, 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 and just ignoring me that I mm -hmm. became filled with fury. <laughs> and I was like, how can I get men to listen to me? And I literally got a PhD. I'm like, if I'm their professor, they have to listen. So that was how I got into linguistics was actually addressing bias in tech, which is very funny because I'm like, oh, I'm full circle. Like the 12 years I was away from tech, things actually got worse in a lot of respects. So mm -hmm. I come in now with inside knowledge. So in grad school, I ended up specializing in a few kinds of linguistics, but I was really much more grammatically focused. And I was very interested in endangered languages. So I lived in Russia for a year studying how people were speaking. And I was so curious about why, when you have two languages in contact, does the dominant fancy language almost never change its structure, but the minority language that's maybe stigmatized, maybe contracting, ends up changing its grammar a lot. And I didn't expect the answer to be what it was, which was context, human context, human interactions. So in order to write my dissertation, I had to teach myself so much about the social meaning of language, what goes on in a conversation, how does it relate to power structures, how does it relate to the larger context. I thought I was writing a grammar dissertation, and it ended up with me in my field of linguistic anthropology. So I taught linguistic anthropology at various places. I was at Northwestern. I was at University of Maryland doing research for the government where I had top secret clearance, which is not as exciting as you would think. That's cool. I was at, okay, I was at well, UCLA. It's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It was, it was <laughs> weird. They didn't ask the right questions for my, they didn't mm. ask the right questions for my um, uh, getting that um, security clearance. So mm. for example, they didn't find out that I was 
one person away from a whole bunch of Chechen warlords. That was much more oh. interesting than I thought, than um, what kind of public transit I took when I uh -huh. was in cities that I visited. So Yeah, okay. So I was at UCLA and I started consulting again for uh, tech because I wanted enough money to buy a house and professoring wasn't going to do it. And um, then I got so frustrated with how much useful knowledge was locked behind academic doors and how usefully it could be applied to so many different situations to help people who shouldn't have to take a college course to get access to really useful stuff that I left and I started my own company in 2011. And so mm. that's how I ended up um, working on bias in the workplace, which is a great application for my field of linguistic anthropology makes a lot of things transparent to me that are very opaque to other people because I got a toolkit that gives me x-ray vision. Excellent. Excellent. And, and all of this led to your up and coming book. Yes. Uh, up and coming very soon. It's out uh, October 3rd. So um, yes. So there were a lot of reasons why I wrote the book. Some of these people are like, why'd you write the book? I'm like, my clients kept on asking me to. Like, it's kind of basic. But I really wanted people, people came to me for two reasons. The first was that there were problems in their workplace because people were saying problematic things, right? Mm -hmm. So they were just saying things that were problematic in different ways that I end up delineating in the book. But then also people would come to me because they would say, I want to do better, especially in 2020, right? Suddenly mm -hmm. there was this great awakening where a lot of people were like, oh, I think there's stuff happening in the world that I don't know about. And my good intentions might not be good enough. This is when there started to be a lot of talk about ally work. How can I do ally work? How can I make the world better? How can I make my good intentions have good impact? And people realized that language is so complicated and the resources out there were so confusing and they couldn't understand how to take this list of words and apply them to another list of words that they said, all right, what can you do to help? And so I was like, I'll come to the rescue. And I put on my author cape and I, uh, I wrote a book that I think will solve a lot of problems for a lot of different kinds of people. It's reverse engineered for the biggest problems that I see the book was designed not what I think is interesting, but what people needed the most, the people who come to me. I hear that. I hear that. And so you're well known on LinkedIn for talking about language and inclusive language. So the title of your book is The Inclusive Language Field Guide, correct? And yeah. so so it's... it's it, it's going to be practical in nature is what I'm gathering by that title. And so please help us understand what inclusive language is. How do you define it? Sure. Actually, I want to, let me just talk about field guide for a minute. There, there were, it took a long time. I'm sure you had the same problem. It takes a long time to find a title of a book, right? Yeah. And yeah. for me, inclusive language is related to why I called it a field guide because a field guide sets up a scenario. And in the book, I talk about the scenarios that are invoked by words, right? I get scientific about it. Inclusive language and a field guide sets up a scenario where the world is complicated and diverse. So I hike, I have a field, a wildflower guide, I've got a birding guide. I know that the world out there is complicated 
and there are principles and patterns and behaviors that are interesting to me that without an expert's guidance, I can't figure out on my own. But it's a positive thing that I want to learn. And that's how I'm setting up this book, right? It's not a blame and shame. It's not a, um, you're a bad person. It's saying the world is really complicated and really diverse. And there are patterns and behaviors that are linked that you might not recognize, but let me give you this guide. Right. And so that leads me into the idea of inclusive language, because many people think that it's just choosing a correct word. And I am using linguistic science to go deeper and say, actually, we really have to find what those patterns are, those skeletal understructures, those behaviors that link them, and then we can do a good job. So let me tell you that I'm going to be a little bit negative and say, Inclusive language is not problematic language. So there's lots of names that people give. They'll say, oh, it's racist or homophobic or transphobic. Honestly, they might be right. But in my experience, that kind of language is not productive if you want people to really assess what they're doing and change it. When people feel shamed, when people feel blamed, they'll often shut down and it'll feel like touching a hot stove or something unpleasant. So the book is really designed to be like, hey, we're all coming into this biased. Most of you haven't had the benefit of the incredible training that I got and the luxury of all the time to do all the research that I've done. Let me give you information to benefit you so you can avoid language that makes people feel like they haven't been seen, that they haven't been heard, that they're not valued, that they haven't been taken into consideration. That's what problematic language is and inclusive language is the flip side. Inclusive language is word choice and beyond that makes people feel seen, heard, valued, understood, taken into consideration. And so how do you handle that pushback of people who want to use the term inclusive language as a weaponization to create polarization by, or it's just their misunderstanding of it and they feel defensive and lashing out and saying things like, oh, you're tone policing or, you know, you and your political correctness and, and, um, identity politics, et cetera. So how do you handle when, especially for us communicators, when we are rolling out inclusive language, we're trying to role model it. Maybe we have an inclusive language guide, uh, you know, that we want to put out there. Then we get this kind of feedback, kind of arm us on how to handle those conversations. So I've got two things in the book that come directly from conversations with people who were having exactly that problem. And let me briefly summarize them for you. Um, the first was from a DEI practitioner. I used to be on a listserv that then converted to not a listserv. So now I don't get as many good questions as I used to. But this person was having a problem because she was diversifying the calendar for her company, which has multiple locations, some of which were in the Bay Area, which has accepted certain things more than some other areas. Although here in the Bay Area, we're not nearly as perfect as many people think. I right. have a gazillion stories of terrible things that have been said and done here. So, but anyway, so she was diversifying the calendar and putting in things like Diwali and Women's History Month and Hispanic Heritage Month and all of these things. And she got pushback from people. And so she wrote to the listserv and she said, eh, how do I respond, I feel really stumped. And so I wrote back a thing, and it was my first time uh, publicly talking about this concept outside of the client base, which is called masking language. I said, the problem is people are using what I call masking language to pretend that their particular perspective, their particular viewpoint 
is objective, is neutral, is universal. They're saying things are just fine. And I'm saying, mm, your masking language is hiding that things are just fine for some of the people, but they're not fine for all of the people. So people who read my book, if there's masking language being used, they can use, they can identify it and then push back and say, oh, here's the problem. You're using this term. So for this particular example, it was the idea of an objective calendar. And I'm like, dude, a calendar is Christian, right? This is a Christian yeah. calendar. You get yeah. Christmas off, you get Easter off, you get Sunday off. So what if you're not Christian? What if you want to what if you want to take a Friday morning to go to mosque? What if you want to take off early Friday evening to make your Shabbos dinner? What if you need to take off for Diwali to go home to your parents? You know, why do you have to take personal days and somebody else doesn't? AD and BC are Christian. So there's so many ways that this objective American calendar is actually a dominant group calendar. So that was the first one. I don't know if you've got any questions you want to, I don't want to be only I, well, yes I, at you. I'll add to your example that, you know, whenever I, you know, often get the question of like, you know, sometimes, you know, people want to challenge me, like, where do you find bias in, in communications? Like, well, just look at your company calendar. <laughs> you know, it's like, what are we operating from? You know, this is, let's start there, right? You know, to your point. Okay, let's go to the next uh, example you have. Well, and I'll say from that, that's one of the gifts of the anthropology side of linguistic anthropology is one of the four branches of anthropology. And it really is focusing on the relationship between language and culture and how language is culture. But there's a thing where once you start studying what's called cultural variability, right, or cross, you compare cross-cultural data, you start to see that a lot of people, there's a lot of things in somebody's world that they think are normal or mm -hmm. natural or just the way how it is, like a like a natural principle, like gravity or water flows downhill, but they're not, they're culturally constructed and water's gonna flow downhill across the globe, but your calendar is not everybody's calendar, right? You know, And so there are a lot of things that feel very normal or natural. Right now we're interrogating as a society in the US, the idea that gender is a binary, which other cultures have known for a very long time. Gender is not a binary and they've got That's terminology. Right. You know, and then the Nazis burned down some important research centers in Vienna. So we got set back. Uh, European and American research got set back a long time. So we're finally come to, coming to terms with that. Okay, so there's masking language. And then I'll say a second thing in the book is my first principle is reflect reality. So we're actually going to reflect reality as much as possible. And sometimes it's gonna sound harsher than what people think is soft stuff. But we'll, we can get back to that later. The, the second example I have is uh, a client of mine was VP of DEI at a rather conservative company that in fact, they ended up leaving because that company kept on being obstructionist with the, mm -hmm. uh, the communications and other things they were trying to roll out. The person they reported to stopped, 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 blocked all the time. Ouch. But at the time, this was early in that person's tenure. And they said to me, hmm, I'm getting pushed back. And this person has a disabled person in their family. So they've got lived experience. That's not just academic experience where they've learned about disability, but they've witnessed things that their sibling has been called and seen various struggles, et cetera. So they're like, I'm trying to get us better and roll out better disability terminology. And I'm getting a lot of pushback. People are like, it's just PC. It's just woke. What can I tell them? And I'm like, ah, I got an answer. Let's drop some science on them. So in linguistics, when you study historical linguistics and how language changes over time, 
one of the things that you look at is pejoration, a word becoming more negative than it was. And people might know the word in English pejorative, which means an insult, right? Just an insult. So what happens is in various cultures, there's always going to be stigmatized identities, identities that are lower status, that are seen as, as stigmatized in some way. Words that are neutral originally or technical that are used to describe people in those groups start to get used negatively. They pick up that taste of the stigma. They get very bad tasting and, and they end up undergoing what we call semantic change. So a word that started out as a descriptor becomes an insult. Disability language is filled to the brim with well, not disability language, but former disability language is filled with words that are just insults now that people I think don't recognize come from a place that was meant to be a descriptor of a particular kind of person. Dumb, moron, imbecile, lame, spaz for spastic. Um, even just spastic is used as a pejorative. And now I'm gonna say a word that a lot of people don't like to say but I'm gonna say it anyway, and that is retarded, right? So retarded, for my book, I looked up how recently, my mom used to teach special ed in New York State, and I was pretty sure her classroom had the word retarded in it, EMR, educably mentally retarded, because it was a, a neutral or a, a technical term that New York State was using, how do we get our students into classrooms that are appropriate for them? Oh, people who test in this kind of IQ range are gonna to go to the EMR classroom. So I said, all right, my mom retired in 99. When did New York State stop using retarded? Because it was already a pejorative when I was a kid on the schoolyard, right? It was definitely negative, but it was still being used as a technical word. Now it's such a taboo word that people will call it the R word. Big news, friends. We have found a way to duplicate the content we share so it can be everywhere all at once. Announcing the DEI Communications Blueprint. <laughs> it is a three-level on-demand video course. It's 21 of the most popular topics I talk about in workshops and training sessions with clients. So by taking the video course, you will be able to apply a DEI lens to your communications, develop DEI communication strategies, gain more confidence in DEI communications, and shift DEI messaging and narratives to center outcomes, not activities and outputs. Plus, we're throwing in bonuses, webinar replays, so you get fresh, ongoing content. Go to deicommunicationsblueprint.com. That is deicommunicationsblueprint.com to get started. People will sometimes not spell it out and you'll see R and then a bunch of asterisks and then a D. So this shows you parallel to the N word, how stigmatized, how insulting, how taboo the word has become. New York state, 2022, 2022, they finally signed legislation saying, all right, we have to move away from this term and we're gonna move towards intellectual disabilities. Even the federal government is not that long ago. I can't remember. I'm going to say five years, eight years, like not that long ago. So my answer that I gave to this client of mine was semantic change is real. 
you can document it. And it is one of the reasons why it may feel like, oh my God, there's another term for these people. I mean, let's talk about in this country, how often we've changed terminology for black people, black people themselves, right? In my lifetime, there have been a range of terms because Unfortunately, Black people in this country suffer from being a stigmatized group in all kinds of ways. And so when a word becomes, just starts to sound like an insult, you have to replace it. Oh, let me end with one thing. My students didn't really love 30 Rock the way I did, but I love a 30 Rock episode where Alec Baldwin is briefly dating Salma Hayek, who's a nurse. And Salma Hayek is Lebanese Mexican, but she's playing a, a Puerto Rican woman, right? And I grew up in New York and was mistaken for Puerto Rican my whole New York life. And now that I'm in California, everybody thinks I'm Mexican, I'm, I'm neither. But Alec Baldwin's character says to his girlfriend, okay, so what do I call you? And she says, Puerto Rican. He says, no, you can say that, but what can I call you, right? And so this very these very sensitive writers are showing that they know that you can use a very technical, a standard terminology, right? A standard term for people and it can still sound like an insult because of the ways that it's being used. So that is one of the main reasons why we need to have inclusive communications because we have to reflect the reality of semantic change and stigma. Would you mind kind of walking us through the process of, of what you know about the changing semantics around the term woke? You know, it, it was just, it was a, it was just a, a past tense of wake, right? It was a neutral term, you know, just like your example. And then the black community decades ago started utilizing it and saying, you got to stay woke. You got to stay woke, which is alert. Keep yourself safe. Watch what's going on around you. And then now it has been co-opted as a pejorative. So it's gone this similar route. And in other words, in the, from other marginalized groups like queer, you know, has has been taken and then retaken. And so, you know, so kind of help us understand this this current context of woke, anti-woke, because if you just look at the term woke, and if you say anti-woke or I don't want to work for a woke company, you're basically saying you're choosing to be asleep, you're, cho <laughs> you're choosing to be unaware, uneducated, whatever it may be, even though, you know, it seems to be a, a, a stature kind of term, an, an ideological alignment kind of term. But if you can you help us in understanding that term and what will it take to take it back? Of course, you ask a linguist with a lot of historical linguistics training. And I used to run the um, the world's biggest nonprofit studying language and gender. So I'm like, oh, these edited volumes. I'm like, in the 90s, we were talking about this, where the language of feminism was taken over by corporations or by taken over by right-wing people. Like, this is a trajectory that is documented and is common. I'm thinking of, I wish I could remember the term, but when I was young, there was a Virginia Slims ad where it was like taking the language of feminism to say, and you go smoke, you know, like there were, there were these things that have happened again and again again and again. So the pattern, I'm sorry that I don't have like a lot of great examples for this, but the pattern is again and again, where there's an appropriation of a term that's being used in one sense, and then it becomes twisted in another sense. This is the reverse of what you brought up with queer, which is done by the in-group. And the term that we use for that in linguistics is reclamation, 
where there's a term that's become a pejorative and then it becomes reclaimed by people who first use it in group to, I think, defang it, right? Like if I say queer, it doesn't have that flavor of, oh my God, I'm about to get beaten up by this dude on the corner yelling queer at me, right? So there are all of these ways that there are these different terms that dyke is another one that's being reclaimed. Um, there are a bunch of them that are being reclaimed and that's in group work that usually isn't like language engineering, but it's just people doing a thing because they want to, because this is how human beings joke and use humor to make scary things less scary. This is not that. This is often, I would say, deliberate, researched um, people who are like spin doctors or paid to take ideas and transform them so they become agitating, um, angry making, talking points happen, and then they diffuse out into the population. So I would say one of them is sort of grassrootsy and bottom up, that in-group reclamation. And the other one is very much um, purposeful for, I want to say nefarious, but I mean, it really is for the various reasons that people want an angry, uneducated, fearful, um, populace where people don't trust each other. So that's one thing to separate out. So I talked about x-ray vision before. For me, x-ray vision is my version of when I'm giving workshops saying woke to people, right? So woke and x-ray vision are the same thing. There's a thing that in your former state you couldn't see because your eyes were closed and you were unconscious or because things were obscured to you because of the fog of culture or you haven't been trained to see through things. And I'm like, let me give you a superpower. Woke is like, hey, you've been asleep, wake up. I mean, and the entirety of the movie Get Out is about this, right? And they call it the, the sunken place. So what I've seen is, and people on Black Twitter do a great job of deconstructing these things. It shows up now to mean, I would say sort of a synonym when it's being used in a way that's designed to agitate and denigrate. Woke is used to mean something like, what politically correct used to mean. It's sort of like the new PC, which dismisses things and says, it's to toe the line, it's to virtue signal, it's to perform that you care. It's um, It doesn't really have a basis in reality. It's only because there's a thing that you feel you have to do because of rude social pressure. And so you're going to do that thing. And so, for example, a thing that happens is people will talk about woke casting. I've collected some examples of this. And so people will say, um, they'll, they'll like, there are nice things on the internet where they'll be like, political versus regular. And so everything that's like white, male, straight is considered regular. And then everything that isn't white, male, straight is considered political. And it's the same thing with woke. What does it mean or woke hiring practices? So someone on a, what was I on the other day? Someone put a comment on something. I get so many interactions with people who through the internet or through workshops, I forget who this woman was, but it was a black woman who said that at her business school, one of her professors had said about diversifying your pipeline when recruiting. They said, why are you gonna fish in the same pond that's so limited, then you're gonna, you know, if everybody's going for the same pond, you're gonna have to go lower and lower. Like we're going lower in our food chain, you know, stuff that used to be trash fish is now regular restaurant fish, right? But if you expand what you're fishing for, then you can get the best fish from all the different ponds, right? So that's a very reasonable and logical way to look at things. So that's the kind of argumentation that people can be used to say, well, what about this 
I think a thing you can say to people is, for, for good faith people. So a thing I've decided with my book is that I don't have the energy to try to convince people that inclusive language has value. So if I'm going to interact with you, you have to already be at the starting point of yeah, yeah. inclusive language has value. It's not, I don't care. I'm not going to waste my breath, time, emotional labor, intellectual labor. And people yeah. who are coming in genuinely not caring or uh, aggressive or very resistant. I'm like, go educate yourself. Like, best of luck. Best of luck. But for other people who are coming in and really haven't had the education that helps them see the world with the clarity that you see or I see because we've had these years really rigorously examining how the world works, seeing patterns, seeing patterns and then and then fixing them or seeing how to address them. Somebody who comes in who just is like, well, this feels woke to me, I don't get it. Then you can work with that person and say, well, what about this doesn't feel real? Because for me, I'm trying to reflect reality. And then you can have a discussion that moves people to a place where, I'll say one other thing. In a lot of my workshops, I've developed vocabulary to describe bias that is granular and behavior-based. It doesn't use identity as a reference, and it's not a high-level label. It's very specific. Woke is the kind of thing that used to be a nice shorthand for an in-group. Oh, be woke, you might not have noticed this thing, right? Now it's a label that gets people to knee-jerk dismiss something. But if you can get people out of the high-level label and describing in granular ways, it in a non-accusatory way, help me understand what this feel like what in this feels unreal to you, right? What in this feels like a performance and not like a good faith effort to improve something? That's, I think, a way to to shift people. But P.S. Like this has been going on forever. I, I wish, I wish so badly for some cranky person writing about complaining that people are seeing you instead of thou these days. Right? I keep on looking like there's so many complaints <laughs> about using they instead of he yeah. or she. Right? So many complaints. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. we did it. We did it. We moved away from like, we started using plural you for a single person hundreds of years ago. And guess what? You're not complaining because it happened a long time ago. But I'm sure there are contemporaneous people who are like, young people these days are so influenced by the French and their vu. You know, like, I don't want to sound French. I want to sound English. You know, I'm sure I'm desperate for somebody to be going through archives for the time period and find those complaints because these kinds of complaints are ongoing people are resistant to change and they often think that change isn't for the reasons that are, are addressing problems. They often think that it's made up and uh, you got to work through a lot of people's resistance with science. Okay, friends, we're actually going to pause the conversation right here. I know it is so good and it was really building up momentum. You probably hate me right now, but the conversation when we recorded was so good. We just kept going and going. So we're going to split it in the sake of your time and protecting your time. We're going to split this conversation into two different episodes. So keep a lookout and find the other half and the other part of this conversation with this guest. I know you're going to love it. Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. 
Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.